and welcome to the Cine Skinny, the film podcast from the people behind the Cine magazine. I believe uh, Peter Simpson describes us as the only good podcast. And <laughs> Peter's word is gospel around here, so I'm going to say the same. Uh, we're back at EHFM, uh, who just turned five last week, so happy birthday, EHFM. And thank you to Jimmy Pettiger and the team for having us again. Um, so you probably realise by now, I am not Peter Simpson, I'm Jamie Dunn. Peter is off on a well-earned break. But I am joined again in the EFHM studio by Ellie Robertson. Hello. Hi, Hi Ellie. How's Hi. it going? I'm good. It's uh, cold. It's freezing. It's absolutely freezing. <laughs> We've been talking about this a lot. <laughs> uh, and, and now the traveller returns. Anahi, Anahi Ruse, how's it Hi, going? Hi, I'm good. I'm also cold. I bought these little um, fingerless gloves oh, yeah. for the protest on Saturday, and I feel very, um, like, Dickensian. <laughs> You should be I, like feeding some I also yeah. have a pair of fingerless gloves over here, and I, I swear by them because they're kind of sick. They I really keep like your them. hands warm enough, and you still have fingers available for touchscreens. Yeah, 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 exactly. And generally, like actual gloves, just make me feel very claustrophobic. Whereas there's just something mm-hmm. about like it not feeling in tidy and clothes. They kind of look killer as well. Yeah, they do look yeah. really cool. I feel like yeah. I'm gonna, I don't know, set fire. You can type. Yeah, roll cigarettes. <laughs> exactly, yeah. it's sexy. Yeah. Uh, and here you've been away in London. I have. Yeah, maybe maybe more on that later, shall yeah. we? <laughs> so Peter is missing a cracking episode this week, I think, because we're going to be talking about one of the most anticipated films of the year. It's certainly one of my uh, most anticipated films. That is Killers of the Flower Moon from Martin Scorsese. We're also going to be talking about the films of Michael Powell and Ermic Persberger. They, they're, they're receiving this kind of lavish retrospective by the BFI right now. Um, so you're going to be seeing a lot of Powell and Pressburger films over the next coming weeks. So we'll take an opportunity to talk with them. But before that... What has everyone been watching? And he, we yeah. mentioned you've been in London. <laughs> yeah, I was at the London Film Festival, so I have actually for once uh, watched some films, which is very exciting, I think, for all of us. Um, I watched, what did I watch? I saw the new Jonathan Glazer film, Zone of Interest, that is quite genuinely one of the most fucked up things I've ever seen in my life. Like, really horrible. Like, really, really horrible. Like more fucked up than Under the Skin? Uh, yeah, 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 I think so. Nice. I think because it's real, right? So it's, like, based on the Martin Amos book, um, Zone of Interest, but really loosely, because I think that has loads of, like, intersecting narratives, and they've also, like, fictionalized the names, whereas here, like, it's the actual, it's about, like, the commandant of Auschwitz, the person that was the longest in command there, called Rudolf Huss. Um, and it's actually like he is named in it, like he's like this kind of historical figure. But it kind of takes place as a like domestic drama of like him and his family. And then in the background, there's just like smoke coming out of like the concert. Like it's really fucked up. It has one of the most horrific scores <laughs> I have ever heard in my life. It's Micah Levy. M- Michael, Levi? Yeah. yeah. It reminded me actually in big parts of it of Nope. And in particular, that specific scene in Nope where everyone gets sucked up into the alien. There's that bit where you see them in the stomach and they're screaming and the score is doing something. It's that, but a whole film. And it's like really, but it's so good. It is really like an incredible piece of filmmaking, but very upsetting. Speaking of upsetting, I saw all of us strangers, the one with uh, Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal. I I cried so much. (laughs) It's so it's so like deeply deeply sad um my friend anna who i was there with um was like yeah film festival especially press screenings are so weird because you're there at 8 a.m with your like very expensive cup of coffee like down in caffeine and just like sobbing at this film (laughs) which what else in your life would you do that it's such a like weird like liminal space um but it is incredible like really it's it's um the new andrew haig film and that was amazing I watched, which is my excuse for not having seen Killers of the Flower Moon, because the same day that that was showing at London, uh, Steve McQueen's four and a half hour documentary, Occupied City, was also showing. And I thought it would be better to watch that than Killers of the Flower Moon, which has come out this week, which is like shows, um, it's just like filming done in Amsterdam during lockdown. And over it is a voiceover of wherever it's like being filmed like the site of it it talks about what happened in that site during nazi occupation and Mm -hmm. kind of like the jewish people that died and the resistance and so it's like this kind of history of like the city and like this kind of geographical area but told through this kind of like trauma narrative and yeah it's really that was like beautiful um may december fucks uh that was really fun uh, the Royal Hotel is really good. Eileen is like a great time. Saltburn is like incredibly silly. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, it was just like good. So basically, two Holocaust films and yeah. uh, the rest of it. Yeah, fun. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there may have even been. Was there another Holocaust film as well? No, it was that I went to see um, Cabaret. Ah. Mm. <laughs> like okay. the theater show cabaret, uh, which had self-esteem as Sally Bowles. And that was really great. Oh, wow. But yeah, it was so good. But there is this point in it where obviously like everything's happening. It's all like really exciting. And it's all like everyone's in their like sexy gay little underwear. And then that one person that's been doing the smuggling takes off his jacket on stage. And underneath it is like the swastika. And it's the first time that's introduced. And I've never seen an audience go like more still and tense like in a second than when that, like it was such a good piece of staging. So that was also very fast. Is there actually. something else cool in that? Is, is, who's the MC in that? It's uh, the lead guy from Scissor Sisters. Yes, oh, uh, Jake Shields. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's like a really- poppy cast. Yeah, it's yeah. very, yeah, very queer. Like yeah. very gay, but it's really, yeah, I really like that. But yeah, that was the other kind of fashy Holocaust narrative thing that I saw. Um, so yeah, very intense <laughs> week, but like really good films actually. I would say better overall in quality than Venice, which is nice. Uh, Ellie? <laughs> um, I've not been to the London Film Festival <laughs> and I I have been watching nothing related to the Holocaust. Um, I've just been like, I mean, I've been at home. TV's been good. Last season of Sex Education, that was pretty good. Yeah. Um, the new season of Ghosts, very funny. Good time, good season for TV. But I would say that the only thing that I've watched recently of note is that I had a film night with some friends and we saw the Super Mario Brothers movie, not the new one, not the anime oh, yeah. one with Chris Pratt. Uh, the Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo one that sort of like lives in infamy because, you know, it was supposedly so terrible and had absolutely nothing to do with Mario that Nintendo didn't make another movie for another 30 years. <laughs> um, and here's the thing. I had a blast. This film is so fucking weird. It's like Wizard of Oz meets Fifth Element. Uh, Hoskins and Leguizamo are meant to be ordinary Brooklyn plumbers, but already they're quite weird because they've got like plungers mounted like trophies in their apartment. And then they get sucked into an alternate reality where people evolved from dinosaurs and not primates. And it's this like gritty cyberpunk world that's overgrown with like gross fungus because it might be the <laughs> mushroom kingdom it's got these big action set pieces there's like five car chases they escape from prison on a zip wire there's a very like tall beautiful dominatrix who like steals their magic key so they have to go at this really like glam rock nightclub to get it back from her and like it's crazy the whole film looked like so much fun to film and it's so surprising to learn that apparently Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo got drunk every single day of filming because they <laughs> hated the directors. They were a bickering married couple who were, like, ruining the vibe. And I just think that, like, yeah, it is kind of just this glorious dumpster fire, but compared to this animated one that came out earlier this year with Chris Pratt and uh, is Charlie Day is the yeah. Luigi. It's like, you know so sanitized so devoid of personality there's like not a line spoken in that film that's not just been borrowed from a mario game because the thing about mario is that like he doesn't really say anything he says wahoo and that's it like exactly. as a character like he doesn't have much to give us but because they've just gone so like weird in the 80s and like not really attached themselves to the mario identity it's just very like vivid and ambitious and if you're looking for something that's like you know different and ahead of its time, and maybe in, like, a, not necessarily, like, a scary film, but a good film for, like, the sort of spooky Halloween season, just, like, a really bizarre costume film, then check out the original Super Mario Brothers movie. Well, I would have Bob Potskins over uh, Chris Pratt any day of the week. Like, truly. He's great. He's great as Mario. Again, it's just, like, he's just running... He seems to be so out of place. He does not know what's going on. I think that he also, like, stopped doing, like, family-friendly roles after this because he'd also done... Uh, like, his, uh, Roger Rabbit. He'd done Roger Rabbit. He'd mm. done Hook. He yeah. was in Hook. And, uh, Who was he in Hook? He was Shmee. Oh, yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he apparently was just like, I, I want to be a serious actor. I hate all this shit. Like, but um, he's fantastic in it. He's so much fun. <laughs> I also didn't make it to London for so, but I had, I did go along to a few of the screenings at uh, GFT. And I can call it. It was a good, like, like, Lineup. Yeah, yeah, and I, I totally concur about all of the strangers. It's actually it's one a funny film where it's like it's not just one big sob. You know, how usually a film mm. builds like a big catharsis. That's the film that's just like gentle sobbing all yeah, the way through, yeah, like yeah. an absolute cacophony yeah. throughout the the audience, <laughs> which is kind of which is more more fun. I think is like because <laughs> it's like because it, it starts you off. I think sometimes just hearing people cry kind of yeah. starts me off. So I think I'd maybe been okay at some points, but then just just 
the woman behind me was crying and so this got, got me started yeah it's a very like universal yeah. film yeah yeah um i'm also cannot wait for us to talk about saltburn because it's such a trashy <laughs> trashy fun movie but also kind of terrible at the same time uh, it's like it's like it's, it's a uh, uh, dumbest it's, fucking film it's so much good, it's really good fun but god it's bad as well at the same time it's like and i just want to look at that ending it's so good you know yeah yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but uh <laughs> to talk about a film i have seen just recently i, I rewatched rob roy weirdly wow. um which i hadn't seen since i was a kid and I, I saw it around at the same time as braveheart now braveheart's like obviously much more bombastic and full of action scenes and uh you know it was like much more the film of that year um but rob roy's excellent it's so good uh, Who does that have? So it's got, it's got a great cast. Well, it's, it's Liam Neeson as Rob Roy. Mm. Um, Jessica Lang is his wife. Who else is there? There's, um, uh, oh, well, Tim Roth is fantastic. He's like the, is it Archie Cunningham? He's this kind of evil English, like, blackguard who uh, basically gets attached to, um, you know, gets assigned to, like, sort of hunt down Rob Roy. He's, like, delicious, like a, a fantastic villain. Uh, John Hart is really good. He's, like, he plays one of the kind of, like, lairds who ends up sort of double crossing uh rob anyway it's, it's a really good film it's a really great script it's like kind of just really smart and funny and yeah just it's a really great time and really kind of undervalued i think it's kind of forgotten about but yeah i i really enjoyed it so that was that was good to revisit so when i was at like you saying braveheart just now reminded me i was at the um pro-palestinian protest over the weekend and there was like an egyptian sort of lefty radical guy that like gave a speech <laughs> there was like a point where he was like and I know that like all of you like there is a film that I am thinking of it is called Braveheart oh <laughs> and there is a line from that film <laughs> and it's freedom and it was this Arab fucking thing I'd ever seen in my life it was so fucking nice <laughs> and the crowd like truly went wild <laughs> it was really lovely <laughs> so that's why I've been thinking about Braveheart recently <laughs> Now on to Killers of the Flower Moon from that uh, plucky young filmmaker, <laughs> Martin Scorsese. So this is the 26th film by Martin Scorsese. It sees him reunite with his two favourite actors, Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. And the film tells the story of a conspiracy in the 1920s in Oklahoma to murder people of the Osage Nation um, who had become the wealthiest people in America at the turn of the 20th century because oil had been found on the land that they'd been forcibly moved to by the US government. In the film, Leonardo DiCaprio plays Ernest Burkhart, who's a dim lad who was a cook during the war and who's been taken under the wing by his uncle, Bill Hale, who likes to be called King, and he's played by Robert Nero. Now, Bill is the kind of local rancher and he seems to be well-regarded in the community. He calls himself a friend of the Osage people and he encourages Ernest to find an Osage wife. And Ernest takes a shine to Molly. Molly is played by uh, Lily Gladstone and it seems at first this is a fairy tale romance uh, but very quickly people in Molly's family and other members of the Osage community begin to die in incredibly suspicious circumstances which after a lot of pleading from Molly gets the attention of the newly formed FBI. The film is an epic three-hander with DiCaprio, Gladstone and Dero but the support cast is also stacked. It includes Jesse Plemis, Brendan Fraser, Larry Sellers, John Lithgow. The list goes on. Ellie, you sat down at nine o'clock in the morning with me to watch this very long movie. <laughs> it was, it's a struggle to up that time. Was it a struggle to watch? It wasn't a struggle to watch. I, it's, I mean, it's that thing really where, you know, Oppenheimer is another huge epic film that's come out this year. And I was feeling the runtime on Oppenheimer, not quite in the same way that I was feeling with Killers, which I think is a sign that you're enjoying yourself. And yeah, I mean, I saw the trailer for Killers first when I went to go see Oppenheimer. And I typically don't like trailers at all because I just think they generally misrepresent films or they like reveal too much plot or whatever. And this wasn't the worst trailer, but yeah, if you have seen it, because I think this will be coming out before Killers is out, the trailer makes it look like some fucking like balls to the wall, like white knuckle, kick-ass, <laughs> explode-a-thon revenge epic but that is sort of just because all trailers are like the Michael Bayification of the film they're trying to yeah. sell. But having watched it now, the most interesting difference in the film itself is that the action of the film feels quite incidental. Like there isn't some airtight, really like well-defined conspiracy. The, the master plan isn't all that masterful. Stuff keeps going wrong. There's a, a target who's shot not in the 
front of the head, but the back of the head. So everyone freaks out because it was supposed to look like a suicide. And uh, there's a point where Leo DiCaprio has to get someone to carry out another hit. And he's talking to this local guy. He's like a moonshiner or something like that. And he's like, go, go get him right now. And the guy's like, but I don't want to go get him right now. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm working my job and I don't want to lose my job. And Leo DiCaprio's like, well, that, that, that doesn't matter. You got to go and get him right now. And the guy's like, but I don't want to go. And he's like, I don't care if you don't want to go. You got to go. And it's like, this goes on for like five, 10 minutes. And it's like, these people are fucking idiots. They're just going on and on in a loop with no new arguments or anything like that. Like, they, they just feel very impotent as characters. And then, of course, the second the FBI comes in, they put two and two together and arrest the right guy. It's never about who did it or how they did it. The only, like, real question that the film asks is, like, where is Leonardo DiCaprio's character going to wind up who has these split allegiances? But the fact that, like, yeah, this is, like, a very hasty and, you know, discordant plot makes it more of a tragedy because this, you know... This conspiracy against the Osage people, it's so opportunist, it's so easy to foil, and yet the, its victims seem so powerless against it. It, like, highlights this very, like, complacent attitude of their community, this, um, the surrounding people, the settlers of the New West, they're, like, very comfortable and hushed up about the genocide that's happening around them. And, uh, you know, the Osage are not just a community that have been pushed to the brink of extinction but in fact like they're the fact that their population is so small has led to characters being disposed to like genetic disorders and we watch the individual characters themselves slowly perish of diabetes and it just further serves their vulnerability and creates this atmosphere of death that's sort of lingering throughout the entire film which to me is like what overlapped greatly with uh, The Irishman. So instead of having Robert Nero, his old age in a nursing home at the, you know, framed narrative, uh, explore this impending mortality that Scorsese is interested with, it's done by the endangered Osage people. Some of the story structure of The Irishman seems a little lifted out to me. Like Leonardo DiCaprio feels sort of like the same character Robert De Niro was in The Irishman, right? He's like an unthinking thug who's very complacent in this grand conspiracy, but only when he's kind of asked to betray someone does he really have to contemplate the violence of his actions and how it's damaged his family. You know, an example is that in, like Robert De Niro's character's kids in The Irishman have about as many lines as Leonardo DiCaprio's kids in uh, in Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, but what sets Flower Moon apart is this like really wonderfully rendered setting. It's very immersive. There's this little motif, I don't know if you noticed this throughout, of like photography and how like the Osage people are getting these like photograph portraits done and it's like we're constantly being reminded that there's this new technology that's just, it's never really stated, but clearly like capturing things and recording things, which, you know, sort of tethers this story to how people feel about it now and how it's kind of like this under underappreciated thing just how violent america was in the 1920s towards uh, like native americans but yeah like the sort of the the question that the film really asks uh the theme that it really explores is whether or not leonardo dicaprio is going to side with his sort of you know machiavellian uncle or this family that he's made um these are the two poles of the film and they're both such strong performances yeah no i agree i just continue to be blown away by martin scorsese you know he's just the consummate filmmaker you know he tells these kind of huge sweeping stories with tons of style and confidence but the, the film also feel kind of intimate as well i think that's the difference between this and oppenheimer oppenheimer doesn't feel like an intimate film whereas this actually really does even though it's got the similar scale um and it has the ground running with this incredible opening sequence because i actually didn't know much about those age people at all um like it just it just my ignorance but like i did not realize that they had this weird position where the the, the land they were moved to gave them this incredible wealth and they had this kind of weird up, upheaval of social hierarchy where suddenly the native american people were the richest people in town and you, and you have this kind of opening section uh, it's shot to look like silent film footage probably because that's what you would have in the day so it's just copying the style of the day but um you know so you have this kind of weird image of all these native americans in furs all glammed up in cars you know having these kind of wild parties and their servants are all white people you know and so it's like it's having fun with this kind of upheaval but there's also kind of a menace because you can tell that the white people are not happy with this they're looking on with such jealousy at this kind of like this kind of like this kind of swaggering people with their kind of bling and their their kind of finer things so that's a really great way to open it and it really introduces you to you know this kind of interest in uh, period of america so initially like you say part of the part of the, what you mentioned the photography part of the reason 
they're also trying to get the, the Osage people to get photographs because they're the only people who can afford it. It's a bit like you know when you go, you know when you, when you go on holiday and what happens is all the local kids, if you go to like a you know a poor place, the local kids will try and take your photo. That's the kind of feeling it gives. It so like the poor people here are the, the the white people who are trying to get the Osage people to just give them money. So they're trying to they're basically panhandling and, and doing all these kind of little jobs for them. So that's interesting. But obviously, Robert De Niro. And now I'm not I'm not allowed to spoil too much here, but shall we say Robert De Niro wants a cut of this cash? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's fair to say that, and that to me that's what surprised me about the film because because of that it kind of feels like a really classic Martin Scorsese crime film. So I, I went into this thinking, oh, this is going to be a bit more like um, you know The Age of Innocence or something, Martin Scorsese, you know, or um, or or Condon, you know, like like his more kind of historical films. But actually, it's much it feels much more like Goodfellas mm-hmm. or or Casino or you know The Irishman. That's the kind of feel it's it's got these kind of that's kind of they're not the mafia, but uh, Bill and Ernest they are they are kind of an organized gang you know that they are systematically and methodically trying to get their money um from the osage people and, and, they're, and they're doing it in a quite an interesting way again i was kind of surprised it's like a kind of like it's a bit of a honey trap they're basically using uh leonard Garber because he's pretty mm-hmm. he's trying to get married off to this woman and, and the idea is like once he's married he has a stake in the oil and if he gets rid of the wife and the rest of the family he can own the oil and it's it's, it's such a machiavellian plan but it's very interesting that it's, it's doing it using uh leading character's looks you know as being the kind of like hunk who's going <laughs> to seduce her but the film's got a really interesting rich cent- uh, central thing going because like what's different from um goodfellas and casinos it's also got this stuff about family life so like you say it's got leonardo DiCaprio at home and um, with lily gladstone who's fantastic and this is what what i think gives the film a really interesting wrinkle is we're never exactly sure how much of their relationship is genuine it's actually quite hard to tell, um, and especially a lot of this stuff is of what the extent of how involved Leonardo DiCaprio is within this kind of plan. Because, like I say, he is a dullard. He's not the smartest guy in the box. He could be just being manipulated as well. You're never exactly sure how much he knows of the plan um, and how much he's involved, or, mm-hmm. if, or if he's just like falling along because he's scared of his uncle. So that's interesting, uh, and I think maybe a part of me that lets it down is I don't. Th- I disagree. I don't think Leonardo was that great an actor, and I feel. He was maybe working a bit too hard. Like I never quite knew. Um, I don't think he communicates enough, mm-hmm. you know, because it's not in the script. He's meant to communicate how he's feeling. And I don't think it, I can never understand, does he love her or not? And I think that was one thing at the heart of the film that that didn't quite work. But everything else is fantastic. I think, I think uh, you know, um, Gladstone is really interesting. She knows he's a gold digger. She knows that white men want to marry um, Native American women for the money, but she kind of does it anyway because you know she knows he's a coyote, but she thinks he's. He also thinks he's a nice guy, and she says, "Well, it's just money. I can share it with him." I don't think she understands the extent of, um, you know, the the kind of, uh, yeah, the the, the plan. Um, I've so heard it's like really her film, is what. I yeah, think. it's it's interesting that like earlier on you were saying that, um, it's it's hard to tell where these characters land. That it's hard to tell when they're being genuine and when they're not. It's like. Uh, Lily Gladstone and uh, Robert De Niro are kind of foils like they are both sort of really difficult to read the second that you meet uh, Robert De Niro he's incredibly sweet and charming but Mm. you know he's like a scary dude like you're immediately like "Mm, I'm not buying this and he never lets go of this facade the Mm. entire film no matter what happens whereas on the other hand Lily Gladstone is like very like quiet and aloof and doesn't say much like i think that's how she's introduced like is robert and you're describing her saying like she doesn't talk much don't don't feel like you have to fill in the silence because when they don't, don't talk much that they're just waiting for the idiots to come out but at the same time she's you get the sense that she is like very like full of emotion and like yeah so it's just like it's very interesting that they've got these the, these sort of dichotomy right these are the these characters are the poles of the film and leonardo dicaprio was meant to be this sort of moron who's like caught between these two incredibly intelligent strategic people mm. yeah but the thing is uh, there's lots of things that i i was unexpected uh, as well because it's such a long film and it's one thing it's this kind of romance with this kind of crime story on top of it and then it becomes like a, a different film it's like an fbi investigation happens like like you must be two hours in and then the fbi turn up and it becomes mm. like an investigation and then it becomes a court case so there's like a kind of a whole mix of genres going on and it's so impressively put together you know the music is fantastic you have um Thelma shoemaker's 
doing like just her editing is incredible to to tie all this together. I'm sure there must have been tons of footage. Like it seems like it's like that type of film where you know there's probably lo- there's lots of scenes that actually just play out almost like improvised. Mm. Like you say, there's that long scene uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio um, trying like, to convince this guy to do a murder. There's also a great scene between him and. Um, and Robert Nero, Robert Nero's asking them like, so, so, are you into women? What women? Yeah. Like, and and he has this kind of big long ramble. He says, I like big women. I like small women. It's like <laughs> I like red women. I like uh, you know black women. You know, it's like, and it's like it goes on for ages. And it's like, and it's it's this it's a crazy thing, isn't it? He's so good at this where he kind of charms you. Like he he, he makes you like these awful people. Mm. And I think that's why some people dislike Scorsese. They start to think he's glamorizing them. And you can never say he glamorizes these people at all. You, you by the end, you see they are the worst people mm. in the world. But he's so good at kind of making you kind of sit along with for the ride and sort of enjoy their banter and stuff like that. So, so it's, that's what makes this film so troubling. You know, when you watch something like Goodfellas, you kind of do enjoy hanging out with these guys until you realize how vile they are. Um, and it's, it's exactly the same here when it, when it becomes clear exactly what's going on, it's, it's, it makes you so angry that mm. you have like been complicit in it almost. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's great filmmaking. It also has some amazing cameos, like Brendan Fraser mm-hmm. turns up and, and he's like this bombastic lawyer. He's, he's hilarious. He has like two lines and both of them are just- He like shouts. Yeah. Like he, he's just like, he shouts everything he says. I think there's like two scenes, one where he's in the courtroom, one where he's like counseling Leonardo DiCaprio and like the camera zooms in real close on his face and he like leans towards you. Yeah, and he's he must just be, it must this be about the time of the whale because he's got the whale yeah. weight and he's just huge and booming and like it just like appears and he's like it's such a shock he's great uh john lithgow is the other lawyer um so yeah you have these kind of fun courtroom scenes a lot of fun scenes i think uh, jesse plemis is is kind of great as this mm-hmm. kind of the fbi guy yeah so it's a really rich film um you know the music is by um robbie robertson who just died um recently who was like a great friend of uh, Martin scorsese he was in the the band called the band and that's what uh, the last waltz was so the music is fantastic it's just got such a you know, for a, such a long film, it's just got such a great pace. It kind of bobs along. It's really upsetting, actually. It's mm-hmm. like, it's, it's, I think it's like, you know, I've compared to to um, Goodfellas or Casino. These people, I, I must say, are worse than any character Scorsese's put on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, really troubling. I think like a big part of that as well is the fact that, you know, Robert De Niro, who's um, pulling all these threads and doing all this like evil, evil doing... He's not unwealthy. He's like, he's got the biggest cattle ranch. He's got this huge house. And it's sort of like, I think it, it, it's it's very much like Scorsese always shows that kind of like Shakespearean thing of like, you know, how Shakespeare showed like kings and generals and stuff like that. Scorsese always looks at people who are like grappling with power or who are already in positions of power because these are the people that want power the most. Mm. They want more wealth. They want more weapons and and yeah like that's kind of the thing it's like this huge tragedy that's happening and you're kind of like what for these guys are already rich how much more rich could they be and uh one thing that i do really like about this film about you saying it being like tragic is that there's lots of violence but none of it is sensationalized there's a way in which that violence is depicted in which it's like usually just like one shot at a distance there's no like accompanying musical sting or anything like that. There's no struggle. It's just like a gunshot ringing af- in silence, and then we move on to the next scene. And there's no like gratuitous close-ups or ridiculous like fight scenes or anything like that. It's just that the violence is shown from a very like disconnected and very uh, emotionless distance. Yeah, or you might see the aftermath of the violence mm-hmm. as well, which is also very shocking. Yeah, it's just a great it's just it's a great kind of film about the just like the birth of America. I know America had been going for like a bit well, but it's like this was such a lawless place and, and like a place of violence and greed. And essentially it's the same place. Mm-hmm. You know, this, uh, you know, like America's not changed. You know, people are still ruthless and obsessed with money and status. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, I think it's you know, it's it's a it's a it's a great film about this time in history. But it's also a kind of state of the nation film, I think. It's also like yeah, like like you say, Jesse Plemons is great as this uh, FBI guy, but it's another interesting sort of like piece of trivia about the setting that nobody knows what the FBI is. Nobody's ever heard of it. I don't actually know really when the FBI was formed, or I Isn't think it's. This- wasn't this their first this is, this major is, investigation? Yeah, this is. Uh, he calls it the. Um, he just calls it the BOI, the Bureau of Investigation. So before they'd added the federal or whatever. But like, yeah, like it's just sort of like no one knows what this means and like why it's a big deal that these guys have come from out of town to investigate mm-hmm. this. And it's like, oh, are they are they Pinkertons? Are they Pinkertons? Like, no, they're not Pinkertons. They say that they've been sent by the government. So it's like, again like just another little like fact that really fleshes out this world and makes it feel yeah. really immersive that people are surrounded by novelty. 
and it also has genuinely one of the best endings of any film like i think it ends in such a way and i can't i wouldn't spoil it but it has <laughs> it has such a delightful ending that, that the is energy that, emanating that again right well i'll tell you i'll just say it, it will make you so angry the ending but also will make you smile because there's something okay. that happens that um which is and you know it's a really nice ending okay um so kills the flower moon is oh well actually we should ask annie you didn't you, you didn't see the film but is there anything you want to add on scorsese is there any, you know yeah i mean there's obviously lots to say about his filmmaking um i have not seen all of it um I've just kind of seen bits and pieces which I do I do think he is obviously like a genius um what I would like to flag up is his world cinema project um that he has done I think whenever people like do this whole like fucking Scorsese versus Marvel debate blah 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 they always kind of position it or they often position it from like a film filmmaking perspective or from a taste perspective but I think for me it is about like how are these people viewing cinema as like a medium and as something that can either be like capitalized and exploited and like commercialized or something that is like art and I think Scorsese has always like been in the latter camp and that's kind of why I respect him rather than that the films are better like do you know what I mean mm. um but yeah he has this um cinema world cinema project where he has helped to like restore and preserve and kind of release I think uh 54 films from Africa, Asia, Eastern Europe, Central America, South America, and the Middle East. Um, so one of them made it into my top 10 for the Sight and Sound poll, which I think we talked about very briefly when I watched it last year, which is Chess of the Wind, um, which is that Iranian film that was lost for literally decades because the, well, the Shah banned it and then the regime banned it and then they literally just found it in old film cylinders in like a charity shop or something in Iran, which is wild. And he helped restore it. And then like Black Girl, which is Usman Samben, uh, which is like a 1966 film from Senegal, which I think is now on BFI player. Um, so just, yeah, these really major films. And he does a lot. I think sometimes when you kind of like hold someone up on a pedestal the way that I think people often hold Martin Scorsese up, it can be easy for them to kind of isolate themselves within. But he has always been a very sort of like community minded person. And the fact that he doesn't like Marvel isn't that he's trying to kind of create an ivory tower. It's that he's actually trying to expand it in the places where it hasn't been allowed to expand. I think that's really beautiful. So, yeah, big fan. Love him. What a man. I think he's also... um part of it, it definitely helped michael powell when he was like out mm. in the cold as well like I, I know that he brought michael powell to be like an advisor on his film when I, michael powell just couldn't get work he was like selling porcelain ducks to make money wow. and he introduced michael powell to, to uh, Thelma. Thelma, yeah that's so and cute that's, and that's how they got <laughs> together so yeah like uh yeah helping filmmakers all over although i do feel i don't know if you, how, what you think of this do you think there's a, a kind of agnes vertification of smart scorsese happening like you know like because obviously when agnes bardo she became such a kind of like uh you know, like a national treasure, like a, a global treasure, I guess would be the word. Um, you know, people loved her so much, but I felt like they kind of undermined her as being like a great filmmaker, you know, that she became like, oh, the cute the cute little lady from France. Yeah, 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 And yeah, I feel yeah. that's maybe happened to Miles Scorsese a little bit. I think a little bit, yeah, especially the older he's got. Like, it is that thing, right, with the little TikToks that he makes with his daughter that is like a little bit like... <laughs> Aww. but it is also <laughs> just really funny did you see the latest one where she was teaching him slang no, no. she was like teaching him slang and she would like teach him through his films so she was like slept on like people slept on raging bull <laughs> 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 and then he'd be like oh it means that they didn't like it at the time and it was like oh babes <laughs> <laughs> that's cute it was nice but the thing is we're doing that and he's still such a potent filmmaker Yay. he's like so, he's yeah. the absolute hate of his powers here and i don't know i feel like the, I, I i get it like i feel such affection for him as well but i also mm. respect him so much yes, as a filmmaker yeah, 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 yeah. you know yeah 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 100%. whether or not killers of the flower moon uses tiktok memes in it <laughs> yeah. so killers of the flower moon is released the 20th of october um you can also see mean streets which is out right now it's uh, that was re-released on the 13th of october and um, for its 50th anniversary that was the first film he ever worked with um rob nero and look at them now they're <laughs> still working away yeah so go and see it So I mentioned at the top of the show that there is a major arrival right now of uh, Pell and Pressburger films um, and cinemas across Scotland and that includes a national restoration and re-release of one of their lesser known films, I would say. Um, that's the 1945 film I Know Where I'm Going. So I Know Where I'm Going follows a materialistic young woman named Joan Webster, who's played by Wendy Hiller. She's engaged to marry this 
very rich industrialist who's twice her age. And when we meet her, she's traveling to his island called Killorn in the Hebrides to be married. But unfortunately, the changeable Scottish weather has her trapped on the neighboring island of Mull. So unable to make the crossing, she has to kind of wait for the storm to, to die down. Uh, and while she does that, she meets a salt of the earth naval officer called Torkin McNeil, who's played by Roger Livesley. And he introduces her to the simple ways of the island life. It's a bit of a swinging romance, I thought. And maybe we'll start with you. What do you think of it? Yeah, I thought this was sexy. <laughs> People don't argue like this anymore. It was really nice. Yeah, I think this kind of film embodies the female fantasy that you'll have like this boyfriend, but he'll be really, really cringe. And then someone better will come along and be like, babe, no. <laughs> Which never happens. But it's nice that it happens on film. <laughs> like, it's really lovely. Um, I have only seen two Pell and Pressburger films before this, which is A Matter of Life and Death and The Red Shoes. And they are both incredibly, on like a sort of aesthetic level, incredibly lavish with these like big set pieces and like kind of special effects essentially like for the time that were like really incredible. Whereas this felt like a little bit smaller and it was really interesting to see them operating at a slightly smaller scale. Having said that, it's one of those films that as you're watching it, just the visuals of it make you feel like tingly, you know? Like there are these like gorgeous kind of shots of them in the highlands and they're like silhouetted against the landscape and it's like this kind of romantic painting. There's this bit, I think, where does he reach up to like a lamp or she reaches up to a lamp and there's something about the way that it's shot where it's like just diagonally looking up at it. And there's this kind of real like subjectivity to the filmmaking of how it kind of, it's like both grand, but also very intimate at the same time, which I really, really loved. Yeah, they just have like a really sexy time. There's one argument they have on the stairs that was like, good for you. Um, and it is just very romantic in a way that we'll talk a little bit about in a bit, but Master of Life and Death was as well, where the romance is just like so everyday. Like it is just, it's not about these being the funniest or the prettiest or the whatever people. Um, in a way that I think a lot of the cinema coming out of the screwball comedies where it was just like such an emphasis on like wittiness and banter and this kind of quite staged which I fucking love um but this there's something about it that is just very like these people just they meet each other and they really like each other and it feels like a much more naturalistic I think depiction of how like attraction and romance work um and I think that makes it more romantic in a way so yeah I really I really really loved it I keep meaning to watch more of their stuff because I've not seen a film of theirs that I haven't like adored um but i keep not <laughs> which is the whole thing um but yeah really really beautiful i will say scottish accents yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, i mean that. like this is the thing i'm not as familiar with like golden age cinema history or like the history of screenwriting so i can't say for sure but this does seem like the progenitor of a certain type of trope which is the ambitious like work-minded girl moves to the countryside with the hopes of you know marrying or promotion or increasing your social status or whatever but then unexpectedly falls in love with the locals and their very quaint way of life and that's not disparaging like hallmark 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 christmas Christmas (laughs) movies do this for a reason i think they look back to this film because it is actually like it's got very like sweet dna you know it's like very feel good and i think that i know where i'm going ran so that castle for christmas could (laughs) stumble (laughs) head first into a ditch um and like castle for christmas like part of the fun of watching it as a scottish person is like looking around and like i don't think that's a real scottish accent it's getting getting like that that one was okay but this one's getting a little bit mrs doubtfire and then you also like cheer when they mention like buchanan street station or something like that but um i don't think that it's like scottish fetishism in i know where i'm going like i don't think that it's tourist fodder like powell and pressburger do seem interested in giving the setting the depth that it deserves like there's you know local myths about like cursed castles and then like there's tertiary characters who are like falling in love during kaylee there's the cory Vrecken whirlpool which as far as i'm aware is like actually like a big thing in hebrew and mythology and you know it makes the set of this like very dynamic sequence where they're like you know having to cross the fucking gulf and it's like (laughs) really really chaotic the film has like a lot more mobility than in the average uh, romance film like instead of our i think that what you've identified this like you know this really nice film where people are allowed to just like get to know each other at their own pace it's because i think that like you know if it were maybe a little bit more a, a bit more you know comic then you know you would have had them like trapped in the same hotel or something or Mm. some unwitting thing like that but here they're both kind of given free reign to like wander around the island so like we get to see lots of scenes with uh joan webster our main character by herself as we do with this uh, love interest of hers so like 
I don't know. I think that's really interesting. It's like a very realistic and just like very well-paced way of developing a relationship. And I think that's why you're kind of invested in it by the end. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I love it. It's got such a kind of lovely tone, and and it's a, and the thing is, I do love those screw, screwball comedies, and there is a little bit of a screwball in here, and, the, and it's mm. the kind of will they, won't they, kind of like classic, you know, rom com tropes basically. But it's also its own little flavor. You know, it's got a little kind of like you say the Gallic fl- folklore in there. You know, it's there's like a big section that's basically a seafaring adventure where they like they do look they're almost going to die. Uh, <laughs> so it's got like it's got like a really lovely tone. Like it's, it's got this joyful opening sequence as well. Like I forgot. Like I'd seen yeah, it years ago. the credits. <laughs> like where it's like we we introduced to like uh, Joan and we see like her, the first like twenty five years of her life in this kind of like little shorthand, which is just lovely. Uh, I love her trip in the sleeper. Up, her, like up a very like psychedelic trip through Tartan Hills. <laughs> yeah, it's like very obviously like a fake train. Like I love the artifice that they just bring in straight away. Like they mm. like okay, it's a fake train. How will we? They don't try and because they actually have it go through like this Tartan Valley. It's like it's beautiful. And then I think we were just talking. About this on the way up like uh, Joan's dreams while she's on the train are hilarious as well she's like she's marrying this guy but obviously she's doing it for his money and she's so upfront and she's having these dreams about marrying his factory and <laughs> imagining all the money that it's making and it's like it's just like she's awful really she's like just this like materialistic person but she's just so sweet as well like like, like there's a lovely scene where her and um uh, uh what's roger lovely's uh name torquin Tor- yeah uh Tor- Torquil. uh they're walking around and uh she's saying oh yes the, the people people around here i presume they're really poor she's like, no, they're not poor they just don't have much money and it's like <laughs> that's just like sums up the film it's like yeah it's like a, a film about like uh just yeah it's just saying like life isn't about like being rich you know like, they're having so much fun like hanging out with the the, the woman who has like tons of dogs <laughs> the woman who owns the hotel with the tons of dogs is i think one of the sexiest people i've ever seen <laughs> yeah. in my life <laughs> she just walks in the windswept she's got like i think the like lurchers just around her like yeah that she's, was like, so hot <laughs> she's chaos <laughs> uh, and you've got the uh, like and it's like the very kind of british thing like you've got these little the eccentric character the, mm. the eccentric major who has like a an eagle that may or may not be killing all the sheep on the, the, the you know it's got all these lovely little details um which i love and it's basically a film about like the antagonist and the whole film is scotch weather and <laughs> how bad it is but like also it makes you want to go to mull like despite the fact there's a gale blowing it just looks beautiful and i think part of why it looks so good actually is an interesting fact that i only found out um before i saw it and you spot it straight away but do you know how you say they're always like shown in the landscape as these little dots it's because actually roger lively was was booked at the time he's he's actually not on mull he's in a studio so 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 when you see the long shots and they're like on on um like on a, on a moor or something like that. That's just a stand-in. And then when it goes to close-up, it goes to a studio. And it's just like seamlessly done. But actually, wow. if you know it's happened. And part of, this, part of the reason there was a mix-up is they actually, it was meant to be um, James Mason, who's going to be the laird. Uh, <laughs> but James Mason came and said, I'm not going to stay in Scotland for a week. Are you kidding me? I, I don't want to, do, I don't, like, I, I, like I, I can't live in Mull for like a month. Are you, are you mad? But then it's funny that Roger Lively got to do it in the studio anyway. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. Uh, but they, they kind of worked around it. But yeah, so there's like, it's just like great filmmaking and it's like almost a perfect script mm. you know it's like you can see that you know if you're talking about rom-com being like this kind of amazing kind of mechanism you can see all the kind of little cogs going but it's just 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 perfect uh really really enjoyable um just lots of fun sequences and yeah it's like a romance where it's not it's, it's interesting like it's almost like imperceptible you can't actually see the moment they fall in love it's no. like like it just happens i think it's maybe actually at the Cayley. it's at the Cayley. i was going to say there's this one scene where they're standing outside the Cayley and she's leaning back against the main mm-hmm. the diagonal and he is standing with his like arms braced around her but yeah. not touching her and i was like dude yeah, <laughs> it's like it's like, it's like oh whoa yeah like i'm surprised that passed the code yeah she, she, fucking nuts. yeah she's like i think i want to go home she says no i'm just staying yeah. you're, you're gonna you're, you're gonna have a dance <laughs> Uh, so hot. Yeah, so good. Yeah, great film. But uh, that's that's on real release uh, this week as well on the twentieth. But um, as I mentioned, there is going to be this big Pell and Pressburger retrospective, and I thought it'd be a good time just to talk about some other uh, Pell and Pressburger films. So does anybody want to jump in? Uh, Annie, do you want to go first? Yeah, or? I can go first. Um, so I would urge everyone to see, and I think they will. It's one of their most famous ones: um, A Matter of Life and Death which came out in 90 oh the year after this well no hang on when did this one come out this was 45 45 yeah okay 1946 yeah the year after this actually that's so interesting to see like how bigger within a year the scale of their films got so matter of life and death is about a RAF pilot who falls in love with a girl and then he dies right is that the premise yeah and then he's kind of like in 
like at the gates of heaven, sort of like negotiating to like go back down to earth. That's what happens, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For some reason, I was like, have I mixed up? Yeah, that's what happens. Um, I do love this film. I just have a very bad memory. <laughs> but I do love this film. It was also in my Sight and Sound Top 10. Um, and yeah, it's kind of got David Niven. Um, I think Roger Livesey, Livesey is also in it. Um, just like the kind of usual suspects. And the way that it's filmed is that normally with these things, you would expect that kind of the supernatural part of it is like, full color and full like fantasy but that bit's all in like black and white and then like everything on earth is in color and so it's kind of I think a really really beautiful and very ahead of its time kind of understanding of like these sort of like religious structures that we have that it's like well no like life is the point that this kind of like adulation of like what comes after like you're living life now and that's like the point and that's the good thing and there's something really beautiful in the way that they find like color and meaning in just like the everyday stuff um there's this point where I think they like meet and then they kind of meet again after a bit of the war and they see each other for the first time and there's like an expression on her face that is just so like just like makes me cry it's so beautiful and again it has like this real even though it's like a much bigger kind of scale and it's like a lot more fantastic just a real like intimacy about like how people make connection how like that sort of yeah, like the bonds that you form with people and how attached you become and how there is so much significance in that. Like, it's a very, yeah, like a really humanist film, I think. Um, so yeah, I would really recommend that one. I think especially like up on like a big, big screen. Because yeah, the scenes in heaven, they're like in this gorgeous, like drained, like black and white. And there's this huge fucking staircase that's like going up and then these like angels. And it's just really, oh, it's just like, yeah, it, it just feels so very similar to It's a Wonderful Life, I would say, in that kind of it's feel good, but like not because it's schmaltzy or that bad things don't happen, but it's understanding that those things are also part of life, which is what makes you like feel like the good things are really worth holding on to, which I think is really nice. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I should mention, but obviously they're making a lot of these films just during the war. Yeah, like, like, you yeah, know, like yeah. this, that's why he's an RAF, RAF mm. pilot. You know, the war has just obviously ended, but yeah, yeah, when yeah. it comes out, uh, uh, Roger Livesley's character in uh, I Know Where I'm Going is a naval officer who's on, on leave, who's going back to the war yeah. as well. So that's and that. she's a very war character, actually, in I Know Where I'm Going. Yeah. Like, it really is that model of, like, the woman in the 40s that had started to work, that had started to kind of have this, like, independence and, like, kind of strength of mind and, like, the agency with which to kind of be able to do that. Um, like, yeah, very kind of the way that she talks is like, oh, you've worked in the factories. <laughs> Yeah. Like you now have autonomy. So uh, yeah, I just like the idea that they're making these films almost as like part of the war effort, you know, mm -hmm. I feel like there is. I mean, I think some people do criticise them for being a bit like, a little, what's the word? Very kind of middle class and kind of like, you know, kind of, the, the characters are very kind of RP, you know, mm -hmm. they, they, you know it doesn't feel like a, it's not, it's very different from what comes later in British cinema where it's like, you know, kitchen sink realism and stuff. So I think they are slightly criticised, but they are making it during the war effort. And I can see why the, these films would be what people want to go and flock to see. You know, they're, yeah. they're very life affirming. They are saying, you know, you know, what a time to have seen, seen a film like Amara Life and Death when you've had like bombings of your city and stuff like that, you know, like death would have been on people's minds. And yeah. then to see this film, you know, saying like, you know, life is important, life is the colourful part is would be, yeah, especially in Grey Britain in the 1940s, I think it would be uh, kind of wonderful. Yeah. Oh, I've seen another one. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> <Which> <laughs> Just one? to say, I've also seen, uh, which I forgot this was them, The Tales of Hoffman. Oh, yeah. Which is really beautiful, um, which is kind of like... That's a crazy film. It is crazy. It reminds me a lot of uh, almost like Disney's Fantasia. Like yeah. it kind of takes place on a stage and it's... But I did... Yeah. Um, my master's thesis was on E.T.A. Hoffman's short stories. Ah. Yeah, so it's like a lot of those kind of that take place and it's like very kind of theatrical and like almost like a little anthology yeah. film. It's very cool. It's almost like the ballet sequences in A Red Shoes big yes. extended. Yeah, 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 you know. to a whole film. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, sick. So if you, if you like The Red Shoes, yeah. you know, this is The Red Shoes on steroids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, there's a great story. I've got a great story about this with Mark Scorsese, sorry to go off subject, but uh, this is just a, a little thing I saw on Twitter a few weeks ago, which is beautiful. So when Mark Scorsese was a kid, he used to rent out the Tales of Hoffman, uh, like on like I presume on like film, mm. like he he, he so he used to get like uh, there was only, so he lived in New York in the Bronx or something, and there was like this one reel of Tales of Hoffman that he would go and rent, but then he found out one week it wasn't there, 
And he was like, oh my God, I want to see this one because he is one of his favourite films. And he rewatched it again and again. And he, he had to wait for it to come back. And it turns out the other person had it was George Romero, uh, <laughs> the, the horror director. And like, they, they would just swap it over. Like, they would, like, so I, th- I want, somebody, I'm going to steal somebody's idea. This is somebody on Twitter says they want this movie of like these yeah, two little yeah, cinephiles, yeah. these two little freaks. <laughs> who would go, who were like, we're like, what kind of 30 year old kid goes to watch like Rent <laughs> Tales of Hoffman? So having like, uh, yeah, Romero were good friends, clearly, and they bonded over this. Um, but like, yeah, that's just a little uh, another really another connection cute. to uh, uh, Pill and Pressburger. Ellie, uh, yeah. So I, I mean, like we were talking earlier about the really interesting set pieces from I know where I'm going, like the you know the whirlpool scene and the you know the Tartan Hills dream, and that might be those those might be interesting because as it turns out, the cinematographer for uh, I know where I'm going is Erwin uh, Hillier or Hillier. I don't know, uh, who turned out to be a protégé of Fritz Lang. So that very like German expressionist sort of interesting, striking visual style and those uses of like dark and light colors might come from there. And once more, uh, Powell and Pressburger collaborated with Hillier in A Canterbury Tale, which I was also interested in because they'd said that it was one of the two films they'd made. I know where I'm going to be, be being the other one of their crusade against materialism, which I thought was quite interesting. And I think that in I Know Where I'm Going, the you know the crusade against materialism is quite obvious in that there's this option to marry an industrialist and that kind of gets shirked. Um, and there's even scenes where like the locals are bad-mouthing the... What's his name? Like uh, uh, Robert Bellinger is. Oh his yeah, name? yeah, yeah. Like they're like they'll say he doesn't. He doesn't even eat salmon at the river. He, <laughs> he, he buys salmon. What, what a lunatic! <laughs> but uh, in a Canterbury tale, it's like far less of a you know point A to point B story. I think it's it, it like it's this fictitious village near Canterbury, which just very like subtly imprints the values of small town life onto these three characters who have shown up here, and each of them are very like disillusioned because of this the Second World War. And it's very loosely structured around the Canterbury Tales. Like, it doesn't have so much a plot as it does on the whole emphasis of, like, the journey is more important than the destination. So it can be a bit, um, we were talking earlier, like, anthol, 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 anthological? Yeah. Anthological in that regard. <laughs> you know, we're not in a rush to get anywhere, like, in I Know Where I'm Going. Uh, but we do, like, linger on the locals and get really, like, swept up in their lives. There's, uh, it's just, like, a really funny one. It's just, you know, there's this quote-unquote gentleman farmer who doesn't want to hire the protagonist, Alison, who's like, recently arrived here as a land army girl, because she's a woman and the farm is occupied by soldiers. And he's like, oh, well, they might be interested in you. And she's like, let them be interested in me. They, they mean nothing to me. And it's like, fuck it, <laughs> queen shit. <laughs> Get it, Alison. She's the best character by far. And I think it's what you were talking about earlier, Anna Heat, with, like, um, uh, Powell and Pressburger showing, like, female characters with a lot of independence mm-hmm. and autonomy because of the war. So, like, there's a point where uh, Alison is talking to, I don't know, he's like an innkeeper or something like that, who's like, she says, so do you know that Mr. Culpepper guy? And he's like, do I know Mr. Culpepper? What would you say if, if I said, do you know the mayor of London? And she's like, but I don't know the mayor of London. <laughs> and he's like, aren't you ashamed of that? And she's like, nah. <laughs> she's like, got a big smile on her face. She's like, no, not a bit. And uh, what's keeping Alison anchored in this village is that when she's no longer wanted for her job, is that she, like, randomly takes on the investigation of this, like, local menace known as the Glue Man, a guy who randomly attacks women late at night by pouring glue in their hair. Oh, my gosh. And it's, right, like, this is a a golden age artifact right here, right? The way that they talk about this guy who is, like, targeting women in this, like, very bizarre way, it definitely comes from an age in history before any piece of art or media was allowed to acknowledge the existence of perverts. Mm. Like... I, like, the victims just seem more, like, perplexed than bothered. They're like, oh, how weird. And then, like, the culprit eventually confesses. I won't spoil it, but he, like, confesses with this, like, very utilitarian motive. Like, it, it turns out to have actually been a thought-out way to, like, achieve something. <laughs> and he gets away with a slap on the wrist. It's like, you know. If anyone poured glue in my hair. I would commit. It's like <laughs> demented, isn't it? Like, and it, it does. It's not treated that way. It's so quaint that they can't even really acknowledge how fucked up this is. But like, it's like I know where I'm going. Where Powell and Pressburger like want to just uplift local legends and like villip go- uh, village gossip and mm. these sort of like pastoral cultures and their own little history. Like, you know, they they talk a lot about how like pilgrims came to Cath- uh, Canterbury for the cathedral. And Alison turns out to have been married to a guy who's dead now, who was an archaeologist who found coins on this trail. So it's like that very like bizarre 
very fateful way that the characters turn out to be entwined with the setting it makes it feel quite mythical like the introduction to the film it sort of like is doing background on canterbury and you see a procession of medieval pilgrims and one of them like casts its falcon up into the air and by the time the cameras followed it it's transformed into a spitfire and we're in world war ii and it's like that very like magical way that the Mm. the film is like deployed very slowly but it's still got that coziness and it's still got like that sweetness that i know where i'm going was but it just lives up to this namesake with a really unconventional story structure and a really like great fun weird cast of characters that sounds amazing. i haven't seen that one but uh, i will try and check that one out that sounds amazing um yeah the one i was going to recommend well i mean i thought i'd say my favorite is probably the red shoes but i think that's mm. so well known people might have seen it if you if you just go and see it it's like it's mind-blowing yeah, good yeah. um but the one i was going to recommend was one i watched recently um it's called the edge of the world it's actually it's not a pill and press film officially it's a michael pill film and this is actually the film that kind of got him the attention of uh, uh Pressburger, and then and from then on um they made films together this is like michael films like 21st film but he'd been he'd been making all these kind of cheap like low-rent kind of film uh director for hire films um in the kind of british film industry and this was his first kind of real personal film you know so it's, it's about like um the evacuation of st kilda that's what inspired it so st kilda if you don't know is a it's an island off of scotland which was evacuated i think in 1930 i'm gonna say um and 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 he sort of wanted to make a film about that island and why and they sort of imagine why they might have been evacuated and he turns it into kind of like a kind of really interesting kind of family drama where like um two friends basically argue the toss about what the island should do so so one of the friends has been to like aberdeen and and sort of saw the <laughs> aberdeen the kind of well that's how Cosmopolitan. <laughs> yeah. Oh God! You should see the bright lights of Aberdeen. <laughs> he's, he's been to Aberdeen. He's what? He's what? Uh, he's what there? And he says, like, you know, we're really behind. You know, like the world has moved on um, in the last sort of 10, 20 years. We we cannot live this way of life. You know, it's it's, it's an island where, you know, oh, this is before television. Before ra- like they didn't have any radios. They they they, they didn't have uh, any way of communicating with the mainland. They didn't. You know, so they they would throw like uh, messages in a bottle and, oh ho- and, and hope like uh, like trawlers would find it so they could send for like doctors and things it was like so it's like very kind of you can see why people don't live there anymore but anyway um so it's like it's it's, it's basically the, it's 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 two friends and um, one who wants to wants them to leave and thinks you can't live like this anymore um and then one who says no we want to we need to stay and sort of follow uh, in our, our ancestors kind of way of living um and then to settle this argument they both sort of have that they decide the way to settle it um is by climbing to the top of the tallest cliff on the island without a rope and seeing, <laughs> seeing who wins first so so as you might guess it ends in tragedy it kind of tears the kind of place apart but there's a kind of real kind of romance to it as well because there's like um what one of the characters his twin sister is also in love with the other guy so there's kind of like it, there's a kind of like real tension there between she has to choose between her family and the the man she loves um but it's just a, it's, it's almost like it's interesting comparing it to the films they made later because they are like you said before and they're so like grand and theatrical mm-hmm. this is like almost like a documentary it's like very interested in just the way of life you know so we we see like how people sheared sheep back then mm-hmm. or we or we like sit in on a sermon there's a very funny scene where they have like a really boring calvinist sermon and uh it's just it's just like they, they make the boringness uh he films it in such a fun way and then it ends and and uh the priest is like an hour and 15 minutes let's see them beat that in edinburgh you know it's like it's got, it's, it's, it's got this real kind of charm and, and wit to it i mean he has a real kind of affection for this kind of way of life and he, and he kind of paints it in such a beautiful way so it's, it's just a really small it's a much smaller film um than uh, he would make you go on to make but it's, i think it's got a lot all of the kind of stuff that he loves so like mm. landscapes and uh people and ways of life and sort of just communities so that's that's what he seems to be interested in so yeah i i would say check out that film it's 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 also Scottish, so it's interesting to watch it. That uh, part of his kind of island uh, double bill with uh, is, is playing a lot with. Um, I know where I'm going, um, and it's, it's one of my, uh, like uh, Michael Pell. I think was very fond of it, and he actually made a documentary about it as well. So I think GFT are showing it with a small documentary. Aww. They made about the film where they kind of go back and bring everybody back. It wasn't actually shot in St Kilda. They wouldn't let him shoot it there, but he shot it um, in Chef. Uh, I was going to say Sheffield. That's not right. <laughs> in Shetland. Shetland. <laughs> 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 that would be good the, the the isolated <laughs> island of of sheffield <laughs> yeah so he shot it in a, in a kind of uh an empty island just off of off of sheffield uh, why is it sheffield? <laughs> uh, time to end <laughs> he, he shot it in shetland um and uh yeah it's just really wonderful um so i would i'd say basically you're gonna have to treat it if you don't know much about um because there's tons going on 
so GFT have all the films we talked about. They have A Matter of Life and Death. They have I Can't, I Can't Be Stale. They have Edge of the World. They have The Red Shoes. They have Black Narcissus. They have Life and Death of uh, Colonel Blimp. They have uh, The Tales of Hoffman. Uh, they've got ones that I haven't even heard of. Like, I didn't really know uh, th this film called... Um, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. I think it's a short film, perhaps. Mm. They're showing The Spy in Black, which is the first film they made together. They're showing Bluebeard's Castle. Um, loads of stuff. DCA also have tons. They're showing The Thief of Baghdad. They're showing Contraband, which is the second film together. Again, quite underseen. Uh, the Boy Who Turned Yellow, which is one of the kids' films they made in the 70s. So there's tons of stuff. Eden Court also has it. Uh, I'm sure other things will be announced. I would recommend seeing these on, on the big screen. A lot of them are shown in 35 mil as well. There's lots of Q and A's, and, and there's lots, lots going on. So I, I would, I would really recommend that. I would say, in terms of plugs from us, um, the Cine Skinny Film Club is back in November. We're going to be showing How to Have Sex, the debut film by Molly Manning Walker. Ah, so good. Uh, yeah, I cannot wait for that one. Um, tickets for that will be on sale this week. We're really looking forward to it. So we're at Summer Hall um, on the 7th of November, and we're at CCA in Glasgow on the 8th of November. I think we've made a podcast, guys. Is there anything else we have to say before we go? I don't think so. I think we're good. Well, Ellie, Annie, uh, thank you very much. Thank um, you. Peter will be back uh, on hosting duties next week. Don't worry, guys. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're just going to go back into the cold and we'll see you all there. Bye. Bye. Bye.